0: Welcome to uh, the second episode in the Comma Press uh, podcast. This is a series of conversations which Comma has convened uh, around a a book and a project that we uh, published in 2017 called "Protests: uh, Stories of Resistance." The idea with this book was to Uh, invite writers and historians to enter into a series of conversations and writing challenges, if you like, with the aim of reimagining particular moments of protest history and uh, to create semi-fictional responses to those protests, which were checked for historical accuracy and were also accompanied by uh, a short afterward by the historian or activist that consulted on the story uh, to give the, the historical moment a bit more context. Today we're very privileged to be joined by uh, two of the contributors to the book, both of whom responded to a particular moment in the late 60s around the country's reaction to the infamous Rivers of Blood speech of Enoch Powell, which was given on the 20th of April 1968 uh, in uh, the Midland Hotel in Birmingham. Uh, We're joined by the author, poet, translator and editor David Constantine, who was studying in Oxford at the time, also the uh, historian, uh, professor of history at the University of Lancaster, Stephen Constantine, and by a, a pure coincidence, I don't know how it happened, uh, they both happened to be uh, brothers. As I say, the, the story that David initially chose to uh, write about was in response to, was, it, was the immediate aftermath of uh, Enoch Powell's speech and the wider context of race relations in Britain in the late 60s. The story is called Rivers of Blood and it's uh, in two voices. David, I, I thought I'd start with you by asking, uh, asking you why you chose this story. Unlike most of the other contributors in the book, the authors who uh, were essentially given a list of protests to respond to or to, to pick, you went off the menu, if you like, and chose a march on May Day in Oxford in 1968, which you yourself attended. First of all, why did you choose that particular uh, event?
1: I think it has a lot to do with my not being able to write anything unless I've got some basis in my own experience, which may be not immediately my own, but have some strong personal connection with it. And I need also, before I can write fiction or poems, um, a concrete image. And in this particular case, what... I'm always very wary about accepting, except from you, <laughs> commissions that have to do with with politics, with my politics or anybody else's politics, because in a sense that they're, they're, they're not two ways of being, but it is not always easy to make a persuasive fiction out of the facts of a matter. There's uh, there's some kind of conflict sometimes between that. So I, I've always knelt needed a sort of felt truth about it. And pretty well, the only thing I could remember about that march was the silence. That it was conducted entirely in silence after the initial noise of all getting together. And also, a very odd thing, I think, for people in Oxford now, students now, and people in Oxford altogether now, the strange division of the city into town and gown, a very traditional division, and it's still there in lots of ways, but it was a physical, geographical division. On Magdalen Bridge, with Magdalen College and the university gardens, botanic gardens, you were definitely, that was the university. When you crossed Magdalen Bridge and you came to the plain immediately after that, the three ways part there, and, and two of them, the far left one and the far right one, had to do with things that university students might be interested in. There was a very good cinema some way down on the left-hand side. And on the Iffley Road to the, to, to the right, the University Sports Ground, Roger Bannister territory. The one straight ahead, the main of the three, was the Cowley Road. And I said here in the story, the character Harry Clayton says, until this day, I'd never crossed that. And I'm not sure whether that's literally the case. For me but there was certainly a feeling that you were entering a territory which was not of the university and as an undergraduate it all changed as a postgraduate as an undergraduate you were very very preoccupied with what was going on in the middle because you had all your teaching was there you were mostly in college for the first two years at least so your sense of the place was tiny and very very intense in that respect um it changed as a postgraduate and it changed in the case of modern linguists, when they came back from abroad for what was effectively a fourth year, because usually then you were living out and much had changed and all rest of it. So there was that, there was the, the silence of it and the, and the the feeling of a different territory that the march took me into. Uh,
0: S- Stephen, I thought I'd also um, start with your... Uh, David talks about the opening moment of his story the f- and the, the primary memory is this, uh, this moment of... Silence. In your afterwards uh, to David's story, you start by making the point that that march, which was in solidarity with uh, the immigrant community and against the Rivers of Boulder speech, that march wasn't itself very representative of the wider reaction uh, of the country.
2: That is completely true, regrettably completely true. I think the, uh, the evidence you get from the press and the serious press at the time uh, was just how much support Powell had attracted by that speech, uh, it is it, it, that is what is being paid attention to. This criticism, remember, is not actually of immigration. It is about the Conservative government's attempt to introduce a Race Relations Act, which would have had, would have had an effect upon the way in which um, individuals uh, would be able to ha- um, make their homes available or not to people of their own choosing. We're talking here about people settling I- into rented accommodation, and also things like whether uh, landlords should have the right to refuse to serve people of who they disapproved of. And the disapproval was essentially about race and about colour. Uh, so I think that was the, the wider context in which it was being presented. Uh, but I think the the evidence also is just how much support was being generated by members of the organised unions uh, and by workers in Spitalfields notoriously, uh, big marches by them defending Powell's right to speak and of the message that he was delivering. I regret to say, since the universities have been mentioned, that the, as uh, is referred to in my afterward as the, uh, uh, the Conservative group at the University of York also came out in support of Powell, though that was not at all generally the response of of universities, and, and that includes senior members of universities as well. Ruskin especially, Ruskin College was adamant that this was an unacceptable uh, speech by Powell and should be protested against. So I think that is an important part of the, of the background. The majority view, the opinion polls conducted by the serious press, were showing just what a remarkable degree, alarming degree of support there was amongst members of... Uh, members of the public who were given this opportunity to articulate their opinions. Uh, and I think it needs further to be recorded, of course, that that ran against uh, the official policies of both the leading parties, albeit they had been tentatively uh, considering ways of restricting the amount of immigration coming in. Um, but I think the intent of Heath when he sacks Powell from the cabinet, as uh, the shadow cabinet, is intended to, to repress. Uh, making that an official policy of the Conservative Party, the politics are regarded as too dangerous. Uh, but also, it seems to fly in face of what still remains to uh, an official view about the kind of a liberal, with a small L, the liberal character uh, of this society.
0: Indeed, uh, the, the opinion poll suggested that 70% of the general public were in favour of what Powell said.
2: That is right. Uh, I think it is important now to recognise that the if you look at as a very good scholarly work has been done into the letters that Powell received, it's evident that many people who were supporting Powell understood Powell's message in very different ways. Uh, For some, uh, this was a necessary stop to people who were of the wrong colour and in that very kind of 19th century sense, uh, they were genetically inferior, uh, that they were corrupting and polluting uh, the people of this country by their manners and by their behaviours and that they were a lower order of species. But the work that has been done on the letters, and Powell received an enormous number of letters. Uh, when you look at those, as has been done, uh, many of those letters are concerned with things that are really not specifically about race and racial tensions, so much as about culture and cultural tensions. There is a, a phrase of new racism has been used in the scholarly literature, that This is not to say that people are inferior according to their racial origins, but they are so different that it would be inappropriate uh, for them to be living alongside people of British culture, however loosely that itself may be defined, that the, the cultures are irreconcilable. Uh, I think sometimes that may come over as a an attempt to deflect the notion that they are simply racist based on the kind of nineteenth century sentiments, but a good deal of the other material that they are talking about reflects this more general concern that seems to hit in in the late fifties and into the sixties and beyond, as to Britain's status in the world. There's a lot of this is actually about the end of empire and the status of the British uh, as uh, the uh, managers of what was regarded still quite seriously by many people as a kind of moral crusade. Uh, and therefore, this seemed, when these people came to our country, to the heart of empire, and particularly settled amongst working class people, this was the empire, in the title of one very famous study of this, this is the empire striking back mm. uh, and causing disturbances amongst particularly manual workers who find themselves alongside people of a very different set of cultural values as they see them uh, and that is a, a kind of unacceptable ch- transition change upsetting of the natural order of things.
0: Indeed Enoch Powell himself in later interviews uses a, a distinction of two words racist and racialist and he says uh, I'm not a racist uh, as you would say in the 19th century sense of the term implying there's uh, some kind of hierarchy or superiority or inferiority of certain races but he is a racialist in that he his position was uh different races cannot coexist in the multicultural sense in a in a peaceful way i mean we could we we won't go into wh- whether or not he he you know he's right when he says he's a, he's a racialist not a racist but um it's a distinction that he makes in later interviews um i thought we would we could uh, rewind a little bit and just get you to talk briefly about the the general History of uh, immigration into into uh, Britain, um, and I thought, David, I would ask you just to read very very briefly this um, this line from uh, Kropotkin, uh, Peter Kropotkin's diary. Yeah, Alice asks, "Why
1: do you like Kropotkin?" I know I used to half a century ago, and his reply then is, "Because he was born into privilege and moved from that into revolt." Once a page de chambre of Tsar Nicholas I, in 1882 he came to the Durham coal fields, he went into the pit villages, he talked to the miners and their families in the hovels they rented from the company. He wore a working man's cap, which he took off on entering. That bald head, that big grizzled beard, that look of wandering innocence, he must have appeared to them like a visitation from another world, one in which the brotherhood of man was already achieved and he had come to spread the word of it to those who needed it first and most, the poor, the labouring classes, to foster solidarity for their struggle. He addressed their big meeting. I often think of that. His life had a purpose and a shape. It is fit to be looked at. And here's a thing, one of those emblematic moments... Escaping from prison in 1876, he crossed Russia and Sweden as fast as possible and spent a few days at Christiania, hoping for a passage to England. Seeing a likely steamer, let me read you this bit. I asked myself with anxiety, under which flag does she sail? Norwegian? German? English? Then I saw floating above the stern the Union Jack, the flag under which so many refugees, Russian, Italian, French, Hungarian and of all nations have found an asylum.
0: I greeted that flag from the depths of my heart. Thank you, David. I think that image of the Union Jack uh, representing a, a safe refuge under which so many refugees had fled, David lists some there. You can add Huguenots, you can add Belgians, you can add Jewish people that sense of Britain, that identity uh, or role of Britain, uh, was very much the policy of it. was very much sort of central to uh, the idea of the British Empire and the mother nation. And I wonder, Stephen, if you could talk a little bit about this, this phrase, Jus Soli, yes. uh, and the notion of Jus Soli.
2: I think the important point about the Jus Soli idea, this is the concept that's not actually, it's not particularly relevant to the European immigrants. It is particularly relevant to those who are, are subjects of the crown, and that means the formal British Empire. Uh, The just early ideal is that anybody who is born within the geography of the formal British Empire is by that very fact a British subject, and therefore is fully entitled uh, to enter into any other part of the formal British Empire, and that includes the United Kingdom. And Now, that gesture is really intended to be going outwards to the wider world, to suggest that these people are members of a, a multiracial community. Um, there is a hierarchy within that, but they have certain rights and entitlements because they have the protection of the crown. Uh, it is certainly not formulated with any expectation that significant numbers of those people in this huge British empire would ever make their way into the United Kingdom. Though some do in small numbers, some do come here, including from the non-white communities, usually as professional people. Uh, the largest single group that comes over, and it is a very important to recall this, are actually the Irish. There is a very regular movement of Irish people, Ireland being still formerly part of the British Empire uh, before the, the great change in the 1920s, uh, and they do cross... Uh, They come into Lancashire, they work in the potato fields. I know from oral testimony from my wife that they slept in the hen cabins uh, in West Lancashire uh, by the marshes in order to earn as much money as possible and then go back home to their families. So that kind of routine of people coming in is small scale, but locally very significant. And we need to remember the Irish in this context, since prejudice against the Irish is not unknown in this country either. But just certainly really then starts to rebound, particularly Second World War and afterwards, when those who are indeed British subjects claim the entitlement, assume the entitlement, to come into this country uh, on, and expect an equivalent status uh, to those who are already inhabitants in this country. And it's been part of the marketing of the ideology of empire overseas to lead, leave them with this very high expectation of their rights. And it's worth remembering again that substantial numbers of people in South Asia and the West Indies were actually members of the armed forces, the Queen's or King's, the Queen's armed forces, uh, and they feel themselves to be performing for empire. There's much uh, testimony uh, from people, particularly recently in the Windrush generation that's now much in people's minds, that they were in their own education led to believe that there were particular virtues, somewhat akin to those that Kropotkin had been talking about, which would enable them to settle in this place that they heard so much about and they felt themselves, quite commonly, to be loyal servants of the Crown and loyal and equivalent members of the Empire and later the Commonwealth.
0: So I thought I'd ask you just to walk through some of the changes in the way that Britain uh, legally responded to immigration. The first first acts were in 1905 and 1919 and then after the after the Second World War there was a very specific kind of invitation to professional classes in particular. So could you just kind of give us a, a quick potted history of, of that change?
2: Yeah, the the first two acts to which you refer in 1905 are the Aliens Acts uh, and these are really attempts to deny or limit the entry, particularly uh, a good number of these are Jewish immigrants, who are, of course, not citizens of the subjects of the British Empire, not citizens of Great Britain, and they come and are treated rather unforgivably by some sections of the community. They seem to be very alien. They're not part of a Christian culture. They're not formally parts of the British Empire. They, in some people's eyes, appear to be introducing, and we hear this phrase so often later on, strange habits, and they have different cultures. uh, They are, and the phrase aliens uh, summarises those people. A good deal of what is attempted to be done is, through the Aliens Act, uh, is to limit by bureaucratic means uh, their entry into the United Kingdom. Uh, And therefore it differs from that which we are going to see subsequently Though it should be said that even between the wars, there's a large number of seamen uh, who were uh, recruited to work on ships which came into Britain. Some of those found themselves discharged on arrival in this country uh, and formed parts of small, uh, what we now start to be calling coloured immigration communities in places like Liverpool and elsewhere in the docks. Uh, and by bureaucratic means, again, there are attempts by the authorities to deny them rights of residence, even if they have come from four parts of the British Empire. Now, the flow of this is is limited, and it is limited in occupational terms as well. But locally, it does have some kind of impact. There are uh, clearly actions taken against some of these people, as there had been about the Irish as well, competitors in the labour market, essentially. So what we're really talking about is the change after the Second World War, um, when the state of this country after the war is that, as we are, I assume, very familiar with, this is a country that has exhausted itself economically in the waging of that war. There's a an imperative to rebuild the economy, and rebuilding the economy needs skills and labour. And There's also a commitment made particularly by the Labour government, but also had been, generally speaking, endorsed as necessary by the Conservatives as well that you need to improve the social services in this country and the great focus is upon the creation of a national health service. And so attracting into this country skilled people, and that means not just people who have been trained as doctors, but also People trained uh, as nurses. A good number of these people in the West Indies uh, see opportunities here and they are headhunted. There is a, including, ironically enough, by Enoch Powell himself, the Minister of Health, is recruiting from uh, the West Indies.
0: What form did that recruitment and that invitation take?
2: It goes in the form of advertising job opportunities uh, to the governments of the colonial governments, in this case, uh, of the West Indies, uh, and they are advertised in that fashion. So there is a very formal um, bureaucratic structure. Uh, to encourage such people to sign up and come to this country. The same thing happens with respect to uh, London Passenger Transport Board, which is looking out very much to increase the number of people working on buses in the greater London area, and they too are headhunted. Effectively, there is a kind of welcome mat put to these people to come over uh, in order to provide the labour and the skills uh, that are needed to help rebuild the UK.
0: There's a line in your afterword where you talk, Stephen, about what the hostility that then arose kind of exposed. There was the, as you say, the rather toothless 1965 Race Relations Act, which uh, made it illegal to discriminate against non-white people. or or discriminate on the basis of race in public places. And then Mm. there was the move for a a slightly more serious and further-reaching piece of legislation, which was the 1968 uh, Race Relations Act, which included discrimination in public services, in in housing and other more private areas of Mm. people's lives. And against this sort of, uh, let's say, overtly progressive backdrop, there is also this growing hostility, and in your afterwards you say it kind of exposes a resentment at the the ending of empire, and I wonder if this it's not just this hostility is not just a a resentment, but it's also a, um, a subconscious expression of guilt about empire. Uh, if you look at Powell's speech, and I was uh, reading it again this morning. One of the most kind of memorable lines is this line which he says was said to him by a constituent, which is paraphrasing now, but before long, the black man will have the whip hand over the white man. It's a very, very emotive phrase, and it's kind of one of his most memorable phrases. And to me that feels, or you know, I, I put it to you, that if a psychologist were to look at this speech and that particular line, it's almost as if, uh, enslavement was the way of the empire, and the white man knows this, or Powell knows this, and he can't imagine any other alternative to the white man having the, the whip hand than, than the, the Batman having the whip hand. i.e there is no kind of he can't imagine uh, non-whites treating whites better than whites are treated non-whites under uh, under the empire. I mean, this is a very critical view of what the empire did to say that under the empire, the white man had the, the whip hand. But it feels like there is a kind of a subconscious guilt within that hostility about what was done under the empire. Would you uh, go along with that?
2: Um, not entirely so. I think I can see that being an influence upon a number of other people in this country. I think rather in this context... I'm not exactly giving credit where credit was due, since there's no credit involved in this at all, but I think possibly Powell's phrase is also picking up that which is known about uh, popularly in this country, which is what is actually happening in the United States, uh, where the blacks are rebelling against the whites. I think it's very much easier in a very well-known society in which racial divisions had been characteristic of uh, the United States since its very inception, uh, to see the uh, the campaigns for racial equality, for civil rights in the United States, and the violence that is accompanying them, but on both sides, and we need to recall the Ku Klux Klan uh, and other agencies that are doing their best to suppress such movements. The lynchings are still continuing. Uh, I think it's possible to interpret Powell's remarks as playing upon those sentiments. I think is intelligent enough, Powell, and informed enough to know that yes, slavery had been a characteristic, uh, particularly of the plantations in the West Indies, but that it would be perfectly possible to hold up the British as exemplars of the suppression of slavery, uh, that the Royal Navy had been instrumental in trying to arrest the transportation of slaves from West Africa uh, to the West Indies and elsewhere. Uh, And uh, that uh, can be said quite rightly as a kind of fit of guilt of conscience about what the British had previously been doing. But you could, and people did, and some of the letters that that Powell received presses this point that the empire had been a force for good. I think there's a There's an element in Powell's denunciation of what is now occurring in the United States, which I think is echoed in some of the letters he received, uh, that there is a resentment in this country. And I think Powell has it at the way in which what had been done for these people who had been brought within the frontiers of the British Empire, uh, that they were unappreciative of what had been done for them, by, and it kind of gets trotted out, uh, the hard-working members of the British Colonial Service who brought in the doctors and all the rest of the skilled professionals dedicated their lives to the service of the empire. And you can understand why. I can remember as a new postgraduate student in Oxford, reading still in the Times, As many the time in my life I've read the Times, uh, advertisements for... Young graduates from colleges, just perhaps Oxford and Cambridge, following the footsteps of their predecessors and going out as administrative officers to the Gilbert and Ellis Islands. I have to say there were times in Oxford when I rather fancied going out to the Gilbert and Ellis Islands, but perhaps not as an administrative officer in what was then one of the last remaining bits of this fading glory, as it were. So I think the psychologist may make something of what Powell had said, but I would put it into that other kind of culture. He is playing a particular line which will be endorsed by his listeners. And it also seems to be crucially important to recall that as a very young man, Powell's ambition had been indeed to run a substantial part of that British Empire as Viceroy of India. That's why he learns Urdu, we are assured, uh, that he he had become still enthused about that idea during his time during the war years in North Africa, and then when he goes out to India in a subordinate capacity, uh, he's hugely ambitious to see himself as kind of in that line of succession of doing enormous good for people in the subcontinent of Asia, Uh, and then to find that those people were unappreciative of what is happening uh, to the extent of demanding their independence bearing in mind how bloody was that process the split between India and Pakistan to feel that what the British attempted to accomplish was being unappreciated leads to the complete reversal I and mean, it is a dramatic shift from the man who wanted to be the viceroy of India to insisting that Britain was no longer a major power in the world that our major enemy was the United States that was insisting that we should endorse the political and moral values of England, sometimes more generously Britain, he becomes a little Englander. Uh, And I think that encourages him to see this empire strike back element uh, as demeaning of and destabilising of the England that he has now discovered, rediscovered. Uh, that this is the England he wishes to preserve, the moral values of the English. There's one very important speech that uh, Powell gives in the House of Commons, which some people you might think might should have known better warmly endorsed as one of the finest speeches they'd ever heard delivered in the House of Commons, and that is when Powell denounces what is called the Hola in in British Kenya, it's still part of the Empire. Uh, and there's no doubt that what occurred on that occasion were that those responsible for uh, the incarceration of rebel Kenyans are treated brutally. There are a substantial number of people who are killed in those prisons by British agents. And Powell is horrified at this and denounces what it happens in the most fervent and strongest possible terms. It used to be said that this was indicative of his sympathy for people of other races. In fact, the speech bears c- contains almost no reference to the victims of the massacre. The speech is a, criticism, a powerful criticism of these agents of the British Empire failing to perform appropriately in an imperial context. And for him, this is a further indication that empire uh, has to go, it is going, and that we should, as it were, Withdraw within the covered wagon circle of England to defend the kind of moral values that are no longer being adequately respected, or indeed in the whole case, performed overseas. It is corrupting of the true values of this country. and it's not surprising that Ho- that Powell is an absolute expert on the history of the British constitution, and the constitution of this country, as historically um, developed over centuries of wisdom is that which must be preserved, and that requires a maintenance of the moral values of the British people.
0: David, I thought I would talk a little bit about this uh, overview which Harry gives uh, towards the end of uh, your story. I'll get you to read it.
1: Yeah. He refers back to the the famous lines, um, wars, horrific wars I see, and the Tiber foaming with much blood. And he then says, If it was only the Tiber. After the siege of Magdeburg in 1631, the Elbe couldn't move for corpses. She was quite choked, couldn't take any more, halted, clogged up. And that was back then, by our standards, quite a trivial slaughter. I often think of the effort of the old massacres, Constantinople, say, or Chios, the terrible labour of it. Born when we were, Alice, our generation... I've often said we're the living emblem of the beginnings of the makings of a fair society. The Education Act, the Labour Government, the NHS, the welfare state, the chance for all our citizens to realise themselves. Then after 1979, the counter-revolution, the systematic rolling of it back to the state we're in now. That's one way of looking at our social selves. Another is blood. Rivers, lakes, seas, oceans of blood the inescapable, all-pervasive knowledge of the shedding of so much blood, the opening of the camps Belsen and Auschwitz, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Nakba, Korea, Vietnam, Biafra, Cambodia, Rwanda, the Balkans, on and on and on, the mass graves, the trials, the films, the memoirs, the exhibitions of photographs, the forever increasing archives, the consciousness, the unexpungible knowledge of what we have done, of what we have let happen. Look at us that way, we are steeped, steeped, steeped in blood and our waking and dreaming lives are brimful with the knowledge of it. A man helps in our people's library, He shelves the books when our borrowers have returned them. He speaks rarely and with great difficulty. He has come out of Syria with his wife and three children. He tells me that when his children first went to school here, he stood at the gates all morning, fearful of what might happen to them inside. Advised he must spend a night in hospital here, in England now, to mend at least one of his physical injuries, he did not dare to. He refused. He fled. Hospitals and schools for him are places that get bombed.
0: Thank you. Um, There's there's two points of view within that piece. One is this moment of hope, uh, which I'll I'll come back to, this, this, this era of hope, this period of hope from 1945 to 1979. The other is of this kind of litany, this history of massacres, of war, of conflict. And in a way for me, that, that kind of echoes the second point of view, this very depressing perspective that, that sort of implies that these massacres are, are inevitable, that there's something unstoppable about them, kind of chimes with the opening line of Powell's speech, which says, The supreme function of statesmanship is to provide against predictable evils. In seeking to do so, it encounters obstacles that are deeply rooted in human nature. If you take that sentence, this deeply rooted in human nature idea and the, f- the final image of the inevitable rivers are foaming with much blood, there is in Powell's speech a kind of sense of the apocalypse almost, uh, the, uh, the sense of kind of endless conflict. It is deeply rooted in human nature that, to take his racialist perspective, communities can't live together. They will always fight. There will always be bloodshed. And obviously you offset that in the story with this final image, this beautiful, inspiring image of a a classroom of school children, a very mixed multicultural community of school kids crossing a road uh, and forming a a river of its own, of of a babbling river of, of life. The positive bit of hope within that extract, the alternative perspective, which was this idea of... Of hope from forty-five to seventy-nine. The, the, the character Harry says earlier on that he needs to, he needs to have a sense uh, that there was once a time of hope. Is this something that you ascribe to? Do you preserve and, and mythologize almost this this period, or do you have a sense of hope when you pull pull back and look at the wider kind of history?
1: There are two things in that. One is that this thing about consciousness. Um, I've written about that before, and I got it chiefly, the idea of consciousness, of necessary consciousness, from an essay, of, an extraordinary essay that D. H. Lawrence wrote after the First World War, um, when society was just, as it were, resuming. If you think of Mrs. Dalloway and societies like that, they, as it were, get back to normal as quickly as possible. And Lawrence insisted then, he died in 1930, so he he he, he predeceases all this that we're now familiar with. But he insisted in the most... In language hard to take, actually, effectively, that we have to embrace the corpse or the the suppurating body of humanity. He uses an, an image which goes back to leprosy and to Saint Julien, Saint Julian embracing the leper, Christ embracing the leper like that. And he says, unless we really do take it fully into us, what we have done, he was not a combatant. But he was finally sensitive, he had a German wife, he was finally sensitive to what the war was all about. He knew lots of young men who were killed, lots of families whose lives were, were ruined by it. And his insistence when society, is, as it were, resuming as though nothing terribly much had happened, getting back to normal, is that if you do that, we'll be back in it. What you have to do is steep yourself into it, into the mud and the filth and the horror and the guilt of it, absolutely steep yourself in it. Now, when T.S. Eliot says mankind cannot bear very much reality, I mean, the back of my mind thinking about Lawrence is mankind cannot bear very much consciousness. But I do actually think with him that unless we do accept what we've done and have let happen, then it is going to carry on. And one chief bulwark against it endlessly repeating itself is knowledge, is actually education, is knowing about it. And Germany, the the Federal Republic of Germany, West Germany first of all, but both parts now, they were actually exemplary in that effort, not to just pretend it had never happened, but actually to insist that it had happened, that it was done by them. When Dachau, the concentration camp, was opened, I think it was by the Americans, they marched the population past the camp, and there was a big banner outside in German saying, Ihr habt das getan, you did that. And the population was walked past it to see whether they liked it or not. And there's that sort of insistence. I know there's some self-righteousness in it, but actually that we first of all become conscious of what's been done by human beings to fellow human beings. This is because I take out wholly any transcendental dimension. This is what we do to one another. Now on earth, reward is now, punishment is now. Consciousness has to be now and nowhere else is it going to come but the model of always having at the back, in disappointment, something, even the, the idea that the, not so much that the once was a time when things were fine, because we've, in a sense, got beyond notions of paradise lost. But again, I think here, chiefly of the generation of 1770, of Hölderlin, Beethoven and Wordsworth, who were 19 when the French Revolution broke out, who really did think this was the kind of millennial thing that now finally justice was going to be instituted by the work of man here on earth now. Shelley's generation, Keats' generation are the generation of the disappointed, having seen that it it didn't work like that, it ended in terror and in further imperialism. But unless there's this idea, in in Hilderland's case it was that Periclean Athens, the 5th century had been what humanity is actually capable of. We know, in a sense, too much. We know that it was a, a slave society. We know that women were hardly involved in any meaningful fashion. But there have to be periods in the imagination, which are, in effect, a kind of imaginative memory of a time of of hope. Berger says, hope is not the same as optimism. <laughs> it's up to us to hope, whether you're optimistic about the fulfilment of the of the hope. And unless you've got things that you can keep referring to hopefully in that, in that original sense these things fill you with hope
0: I should just jump in and say that is kind of the point of this, this whole project yes really, I, I is, see that I is see. to kind of preserve those, th- these acts of hope because any protest is really is, is not just uh, about uh, having hope it's about uh, expressing it it, yeah. it is an act of, of, of hope
1: that's right now when Harry says you know, I, I need a time that I can think of when we were hopeful Actually, in what he's doing, he opens the people's library. He, he, he has a wife rescued out of the, out of the Shatila camp as the one survivor of her family. His practical life is going into, ins- insisting on the possibility of, of hope. is giving talks on Kropotkin and things like that. These are models of behaviour. She kind of answers it with an image in the here and now, which you can see any day, three or four times a day on the Cowley Road of the kids and of the teaching assistants and traffic halted and stuff like that that's all going on now and whatever and it's a very great deal that is wrong there are actually it is actually illegal to behave badly towards people of 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 a different class or culture or religion or race or whatever there is actually legislation now in place that is is better than what was there pre 1968 so you've got structures in society which are actually the insistence on the possibility of good behaviour in human beings, and the idea that what, as Steve was saying, that you don't want telling by law that you you may not be rude to a man in a pub because he's black. This comes from your natural decency, but no, you need legislation in place, just like seat belts and smoking and all the rest of it. Actually, then things that becomes the norm, and then you these these are things then which offend an, an awful lot of people when there are transgressions against the law. What you don't ever want is what you had in South Africa, and certainly had in Nazi Germany, and unfortunately then sometimes now in Israel, where the law itself is unjust. When you've got, a, a, a mm. Germans called it the Rechtsstaat, the, the legal state, the state of law, and under the Nazis, laws were passed which were fundamentally and thoroughly and knowingly unjust. And when you've got that, as you had in apartheid South Africa, then something is so fundamentally wrong that citizens can't, they don't have the elbow room to be good people. People need encouragement to be good people. And one encouragement is example, thing in practice. The guy that I'm referring to this, this, I've written a story, a further story about this. This is a man so traumatised by it that the pornography that these that these uh, refugees share is the pornography of violence. I was sitting with him one day, and he shoved his mobile, off, his his smart, his iPhone across, and said, "Mr. David, look," and he showed me a thing which I can't get out of my head. Now, he feeds off this. There are structures in place. There are people to people across the races doing good turns to one another the whole time. Now that's the optimism of it, but. I suppose for intellectuals and lawmakers, you need always the possibility at the back of your mind that that hope is possible, hope is not expungible, but at the same time, there are, the list you could add to that list is the treatment by the Home Office of the Windrush thing. You, you just feel, what you know, this is still going on. But fundamentally, there's an awful lot in place and there are endless examples of what Kropotkin called mutual aid. Just that mutual aid, people looking after other
0: people. You mentioned Windrush, and it's the, it's there looming over this conversation. Yeah, sure um, and I guess now the time to, to to ask you, Stephen, about what you thought when this this crime uh, was exposed, and also I I'm interested to know what you think about the kind of the role of. Uh, the monarch in this now because the queen was kind of involved it was it happened around the time of gathering of uh, heads of commonwealths the queen gave a speech where she talked about passing on the, the time when she she will no longer be with us and and prince charles will take on her role as head of head of the commonwealth and it came across that her her greatest mission in life and i'm not a monarchist don't get me wrong but her greatest mission in life was the maintenance of the commonwealth and this uh, the, the, being a figurehead for this sense of a a mole center or model mole leadership throughout the Commonwealth, then you had this 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 disgraceful kind of scandal exposed in the background to that meeting and then Theresa May had to uh, meet with heads of Commonwealth and apologize and uh, retract even though it was uh, evidently a policy that she put in place herself and we won 't talk about Trump yet but the the royal wedding was with uh, harry and meghan was an interesting kind of moment you know seeing the the queen sit in a, and and the entire royal family experience a very very multicultural uh, ceremony completely kind of anathema to what we'd generally associate with the royal family and then trump appears last week and allegedly prince charles according to the times prince charles and prince william refused to be there uh suddenly you have the Queen, who, you know, the, the royal family has always been criticised for being the head of uh, empire, a very destructive, brutal force. Suddenly she's become like a, a moral reminder, a moral compass against this wider wave of isolationism, racism, populism, etc. going on. It's, do, you, do you find it incredibly ironic? Or is it as ironic as I do?
2: Well, it's clear that there's a high level of irony in it all. Um, and I'm not a monarchist either but I think it needs to be recognised that the, 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 the Queen has consistently adopted the notion that the Commonwealth is a force for good. I make that point because quite obviously since we have been referring to Powell earlier, Powell came to the view that it was not a force for good and therefore it should be scrapped. Um, but I think it's clearly part and parcel of the Queen's own upbringing. Uh, she brought up in empire, she sees its transition to Commonwealth, uh, I think she felt... It's very difficult for me to speak on behalf of the Queen, but I would interpret her behaviour as indicative that she regards the Commonwealth as a force still for good. It is, in her view, and in that of many other supporters of the Commonwealth, um, it, it is a force which uh, does deny, in its open policies, uh, the forces of racial prejudice. It is supposed to be multiracial. It's supposed to regard all peoples as of equal status within the Commonwealth. It is supposed to exemplify toleration of people of all a different faiths or, I would like to add, non-faiths. Uh, that it does, in that respect, appear to be a moral cause, not a crusade, because there's no authority which uh, the Queen can exert, it is clear, and as always has been, it has been the policy of ministers in this country and overseas to turn those ideals into practice. About the royal wedding, uh, however, transfixion might have been, as many other people around the country were, by the actual service itself, uh, but I think it's a statement, at least of the royal family in its new persona, uh, I think there is a kind of moral substance to that. And I think you know it's a moral substance because a lots of people objected to it. So it's not for many people an anodyne, merely quiz show, kind of game show sort of activity. I think people were either enthused by it or objected to it. And I think that suggests that there is a kind of moral component. But I think as a statement still of what you might regard it as a lingering ideal, a global ideal, uh, then there is certain merits in that position that she took, the monarchy has moved on to adapt very strongly. If you think about the royal marriages and unmarriages, uh, things have moved on from where they were a few decades back. Uh, In that respect, the monarchy has moved. Um, Now, that still is not making me a monarchist, uh, but I think it is indicative of a sense, maybe, of the advice that uh, the Queen has been getting over the years that she also, and the royal family, Uh, And in the case of Prince Harry, it is his actually his personal choice uh, to move towards something that's marginally more representative of the country that is the heart of the Commonwealth. Uh, It should also be said, since there's a lot of Powell flickering around in all this as well, uh, Powell, of course, fervently objected to the, uh, whatever it's called, the Royal Titles Act, which removed from the titles of the Queen uh, the head of the British Commonwealth. It became the Commonwealth and that was for him yet further indication this was simply a talking shop run by people who didn't have British ideals and merely exploited the guilt of the British by demanding increasing amounts of overseas aid which was squandered uh, on corrupt governments
0: I have to talk about kind of the, the current context uh, in comparison to the 60s uh, and in comparison to the kind of the hostility that was felt in the country at the time to Im- immigration um, and the rise or the perceived rise of isolationism and uh, xenophobia uh, in the build up to the the brexit vote and uh, in America uh, leading up to the, uh, the the trump victory, one place we can start is looking at this notion of uh, populism and and what populism represents and and its tactics one of the one of the tactics of populism is for the the populist demagogue to identify with the the everyman, and to frame the everyman as somehow persecuted from above uh, by laws, by government, by bureaucrats. Another, this, this line in Powell's speech, if only people wouldn't talk about it, it wouldn't happen. There's a claim that Powell is making that there is some kind of conspiracy of silence around the subject of immigration, which Continues to this day. People still talk about the fact that they can't talk about immigration, even though it's being talked about all the time. If you look at the run-up, if you are doing a, a kind of a, a case study of the run-up to uh, Brexit in 2010, the general election party leader debate, uh, there was there was three of them. The first time, a kind of presidential-style debates were held on TV. Immigration is like the only thing they talk about. Brown and Cameron want to be strongest on immigration. They want to be toughest. Uh, Nick Clegg is a little bit more tempered, but they all want to talk the most and show that they have the most, you know, the strongest ideas in terms of limiting immigration. It's it's not like it's not been talked about. It's all certain papers talk about, but yet the populist leader always says, "I'm being silenced," or the conversation about immigration is being silenced. A kind of third uh, aspect to the populist argument is this claim that you know, they're actually in favour of equality like everybody else, but minorities are being privileged, they're given special special rights. And Powell, in his speech, quotes Heath by saying there's no such thing as a first-class citizen or second-class citizen, but then says special rights are being given to, to migrants. It seems like he wrote the book on populism, uh, Powell, even though he's, he's held up as a, as intellectual as uh, this poet, as this you know linguist, etc., etc., he kind of wrote the book on, on uh, uh, he kind of ticks all the boxes in terms of what the populist has to do. Um, uh, how how have you kind of felt, uh, or how have you responded, or what have been your kind of thoughts uh, in the face of people like uh, Farage and Trump over the last few years? Do you think that do you think there's any way of fighting this level of populism? Because Powell was was shot down you know there wasn't an inevitable rise of these figures whilst in 2016 they kind
2: of won. Where do we begin? Mm. Uh, the crucial element in this probably is that in Powell's case he knows what he is doing That he is deliberate like like Griffiths and Smethic, the same thing that he knows that this is a way that's going to attract a good deal of popular support. Uh, I think my perspective on that and I've, I've I've worried very hard about the response to the referendum about Brexit. My feeling about it is that it's not dissimilar from the sort of things that Powell is consciously exploiting in Wolverhampton or Britain more generally. My feeling is that there are good reasons why many ordinary families, and that is irrespective of colour, have reasons to resent the behaviour of a sequence of UK elected governments. Now, it, there are reasons to feel that they have been let down. I always... It's a problem for a number of Labour MPs over the years, even at that time, in the, in the PAL time, that there is a good deal of resentment felt uh, by constituents about the way in which they feel themselves to be in social and opportunity terms neglected. I mean, it goes back indeed even into the classic years of the 1930s when uh, there were very obvious signs in which there was a prosperous section of the United Kingdom, and it generally speaking was down in the southeast, and that there were neglected parts uh, of the population. Uh, elsewhere, in the particularly in the north and in the Welsh coalfields, and so on and so forth, that seems to be replicated repeatedly. Uh, David was talking earlier on about the need for hope. There's a political hope, actually, was being generated, and even in the 1930s, that something needed to be done about this, and that does lead through to attempts to uh, bring a degree of enhanced prosperity to areas which we, at the time, were called depressed areas. It, it, Typically enough, the legislation that was supposed to encourage recovery in the depressed areas. Was retitled special areas, which is a rather kind of coy way of talking about the same thing. But the intention was to put public money from the south, east, essentially into those neglected older industrial areas. Now, I think that pattern, in spite of what has happened between, has been repeating itself. I mean, I think what. Um, has happened to some of those major industries, and the coal industry is obviously one, uh, but also even in car manufacturing, with some glorious exceptions, uh, have been actually not been providing the opportunities uh, that the resident populations of those areas might have felt was their desert. When Tebbit talks about his dad on his bike looking for work is such a pathetic image with respect to a large number of settled communities. And Dave knows only too well what happened in County Durham uh, in the times when he was at Durham University. Uh, you can see that there are good reasons when those communities should have felt resentful about what was happening to them. And I see echoes of that uh, in the Brexit vote. I think people were voting in many respects against something, I mean, it was a lamentable, perfectly disgraceful public debate in that there was very little serious attempt to provide evidence based about the pros and cons of being members of the European community. Uh, So it was being based upon kind of gut feelings about very much as Powell puts in his speech, they are doing this to us and we have not been consulted. And what's been done to us is neglect. I think the There's evidence of things being done, but obviously it doesn't play all around the country. So I think you can see that too, since you mentioned Trump. A lot of what Trump was exploiting was that sense that there were communities in large areas of the United States that had been neglected by Washington. And he played very, very effectively upon that. I will fix it. I will make America great again we see almost that same sort of echo in the Brexit vote and all the debates that have taken place since. If we have Brexit, we will make Great Britain great again. And it's complete nonsense, it is absurdity and it's deceitful because the way in which this country will ever recover economically and therefore be able to provide the basis to sustain the hope of the welfare state and social services is being, in my view... Um, fully engaged with the largest single market that's been available to this country effectively since the Second World War. But I can see why people voted for Brexit and I think what is then, it was a field day for those people like Farage to go fishing around in. I mean, Farage, I think, probably believes his own message but there's lots of other people out there and a certain Johnson springs to mind who doesn't know what the message is but has a way of working it for his own personal advantage, quite clearly one of the most appalling politicians this country has ever thrown up and I don't mind that staying on the record
1: (laughs) No, you you can add Farage Farage is a total cynic he's going to carry on drawing his EU pension and that's worrying when you get people who are wholly without principle in positions of power I mean, Powell was a man of principle, disapprove of the principles, Mm. Johnson would change his principles, you can leave all this (laughs) Johnson would, would change his principles like when he decided he would he would resign. I mean, it's it's out, well. I mean, he, he decided
2: not to be concreted over by the extension of the mm. Heathrow Airport. Yeah, quite,
1: think. but he's, he's he's left Gove there. He kind of outflanked Gove, and Gove made the mistake of expressing loyalty to the PM. Now Johnson's the front runner for for the mm. coup. I mean, that's
0: that's a level of and it, but it's it's cynicism but there is also kind of a program behind it. You can say that uh Trump is is similarly just a kind of uh, infantile megalomaniac who who doesn't mind flipping uh, from one day to another on his position as long as he's the center of attention he stays he remains yeah. at the center of the narrative and everybody's kind of obsessing about him the way that the media is. Uh positive or negatively it doesn't matter uh, no such thing as bad press etc. You can say that they're just you know cynics. But there is a programme behind him. There is, a, there is, you know, there is a, a movement behind Trump, at least, which is an isolationist movement. And individuals may be sacked and you know, Bannon may be kicked off and various other you know, members of his team are constantly being sacked. But there is a, a movement, a corpus behind him uh, with a very, very particular aim. And likewise, Johnson and Farage surely. Yeah, the the thing that worries me even more than that is what you
1: address in the foreword to this book. Really, is that, and many people are talking about it now, is that this is a peculiar system or state we've got into where there's a kind of coexistence of like valuing things and nobody. Oh, that's wrong. But the idea that well we think this, but you think that, and and that's got to have like balance on the. You have somebody a climate change, and then you have somebody who says that. You know, Earth is flat and it rests on a giant tortoise. I mean, it's as basic as that. But that's Mm. that's balance. And from the writerly point of view, what you've written in the foreword to there is... I'm trying to write an essay at the moment called something like Fiction in the Age of Alternative Facts. Because it is actually through fiction that you can get at the truth of how people live. And it goes back some way, this. I was in New York just after... Not a bit after nine eleven. at the time when they were opening Abu Ghraib prison and all that, and the New Yorker every day were further pictures of American atrocities committed against and yet at the same time a small portion of the public were being persuaded that either this was true or it was a bad thing and I can't remember the figure but there was a, a colossal per- percentage of the American population believed that Saddam Hussein has personally authorised and organised the bombing of the Twin Towers and Yet, when you went to Penn Station, all the books were there, you know just paperbacks you could, the truth is actually there available, but there's this alternative alternative facts and and that is worrying and i I met a guy there became a friend really, and we were talking about it he was an American poet, obsessively immediately talking about it, the state their country's in in two thousand and three four and he just said to me then, it's the end of reason, David, and I've never forgotten that. Almost the last poem that Brecht wrote was a, an unfinished thing, just before his death. After a year of thinking that people were persuadable, and it's a poem that begins, "And I always thought that the simplest words." And it goes on to say, "If I tell you what is, it will lacerate your heart." That's the line, and using the simplest. And he, and this is tragic in his case. By 1956, having seen the lot really up to date of atrocity, the feeling that you're at the end of. Of reason. You've just got alternative facts. And that's where fiction and poetry come in, with particularly, I mean, and precisely this balance of people whose scholarly profession and responsibilities is actually to inquire into the facts. I mean, I'm very pleased and proud to have a, a son who's a historian as well, writing about gypsies, getting the facts about how police treated people and why they were doing it and so forth. So you you need grounded facts. And and you need fiction and poetry endlessly to make it clear what human beings are actually like.
0: As you say in your story, or as as the two characters say, one says, I I wanted to remember, and the response was, by remember, you mean read up on. Yeah. There is that need to... Have a, a a more scholarly approach, a more historical approach to to go and go back and re-educate yourself. Yes, I even think, if you were there.
1: I know it sounds slightly. It, it sounds. I mean, and he's made it seem rather foolish in a the sense there, but um, I don't mind admitting. I mean, that's that's what I did, and it was quite an eye opener because reading the the thing by the principal of Ruskin about uh, um, what was going on, and getting out old copies of Charles, a photo of a, of a student being kicked by a docker, you know. Stuff like that. Well, you no, know, I didn't see that and I didn't see that, but I was—I knew about all these things because it was 1968 and we were in other demonstrations and so forth. I don't see anything wrong in, in, in fact, I see everything right in a sense in, in going back and giving substance to what your feeling was about. And if your feeling is false, then you're feeling you need to get rid of it. Mm. So it, if when you look more and more, I've done this often, I've had a strong feeling about things and I think, well, hang on a minute, you know, and then I've checked some various ways of checking and and if it doesn't hold water I, won't, I want fiction just as the way that Graves spoke about poetry, with the rigour of any prose one of Rilke's chief characters, a poet himself and Rilke says of him he was a poet and he hated approximations mm. and it's that thing that, that that poetry and fiction are the precisest form in, always in conjunction with with the facts of the matter as they can be assembled. As soon as you get into somebody saying on on American television to countless millions, well, when they look at the the size of the relative you know population there for Obama, well, these are alternative facts. This is now going back quite a long way over several decades. This slide into thinking, well, you say this, I say that, and. Will see who's strongest, not who's truthfulest, but and that's worrying. And that's where what you're doing with comma with volumes like that, not just like that. Every single thing that you publish is itself as, as Bloodaxe and all the other publishing houses that keep on keeping on with fiction and poetry, as well as the, the, the kind of documentation of it as well. So, thank you.
2: Can I offer you a metaphor about this? Well, it sounds like a metaphor, but in fact, it's a reality. Uh, and I used to use this in an MA class, which was about... The title of the class was Libraries and Archives. It's really a kind of training course for students, postgraduate level, about archives, how to find them, how to use them and so on. So a lot of it was intensely practical. Um, but I always began by drawing their attention to a piece that had been written about the Holocaust. Uh, and it was that in the knowledge of those in concentrated in those camps, of what was going to happen to them. They stole a milk churn and wrote down a record of their experiences in the camp, put it in the milk churn and buried it deep in the ground, hoping, anticipating that sometime, somewhere, somehow, sometime in the future, it would be excavated, like digging up a kind of Mesolithic tomb, and there would be a record of facts. And to sort of grasp the the passion and the determination that that record should be preserved, does I think strongly resemble the insistence that there is evidence-based fact. It was the I, I've just finished writing an essay. And it, and about half the text is footnotes. And um, Dave, you know that I mean, I gave evidence to the Independence Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse. And absolutely every one of the factual statements that myself and my colleague working on that incorporated into our ultimately 22 reports, a major report and 21 addenda, all the evidence that we cited had to be footnoted. And if it was not immediately available on the line, we had to provide digitised copies of those documents so that anybody, whoever resistant to the line of argument and the force of the material, anyone who resisted that would be told implicitly, go look it up.
0: Final question. Do you see the, this current, this slide, this Malay, this uh, nadir of... Alternative facts, fake news. Do you see it as the next step down in this decline, this post 1979 kind of counter revolution? Or do you see it as uh, a temporary kind of, a, a, a temporary aberration in a generally progressive movement forward?
2: Every time I watch Channel 4 News, and it tends to be Channel 4 News I watch, I end up being deeply depressed. But it seems to me the very fact that Because there's now this repeated use of the word alternative facts, it is actually, I think, possibly an encouraging sign because there are some facts which can be checked and some facts that can't. And Channel 4 is pretty good at this, fact check. Um, Trump's speech up in Scotland, which contained factual errors, was nailed immediately. And it seems to me that there is therefore a critical awareness. The fact that they call alternative facts as opposed to fact It seems to be of vital importance. You keep plugging along with, as it were, metaphorically, your footnotes. Here is the source for this. And sometimes, yeah, sources are themselves need critical appraisal. We found that in that inquiry, that there were ways of wording things that obscured. But in the context of other pieces of information, you knew actually what the truths really were. And once you start on that, Line of that constant interrogation of what people say and what people write, which can be done absolutely right in a fictional form as well. It, you, you are constantly pressing towards an interpretation of the evidence which carries at least a greater veracity than it otherwise does by somebody saying, Oh, there's an alternative to this, that the earth actually is flat. Well, the evidence is overwhelmingly to the contrary. <laughs> Um, so, I think there is i mean, 'm hopeful that the very repeated use of that kind of phrase the very repeated peddling of what are some very increasingly stale arguments in favor of either brexit or of making America great again sometime down the line and if it 's not my generation, and it may have not been my son and daughter's generation but I have five grandchildren I'm still hoping that they will <laughs> have a, a sense of what both could have been achieved and what has been achieved in spite of all the resistance the lies, the distortions the appeal to the least worthy of human sentiments and I think that would be the basis for me of, of a hope If I, if I can't retain that and, and I look back to the past frequently to see, OK, it's been a bit up and downy, but, my God, I'd rather be living today than 100 years ago. For one thing, I wouldn't be alive today hmm. in similar circumstances 100 years ago. There has been progress, and it's not just material, it is actually about expression of certain ethical values, which I think the greater majority of people are globally, and I think this is terribly, terribly important. This has been largely a discussion about this country, and a bit about America, but it's it's actually the internationalism that you're finding. The people come from entirely different cultures. I wept, genuinely wept, about that fantastically successful, barring one, tragedy, getting those kids out of the cave. Because it was a huge effort by a huge number of people from all over the world. And it was globally reported and there was a global rejoicing about that. That seemed to be a classic metaphor of what human beings are capable of doing with a bit of luck if they set their minds to it and regard human life as hugely hugely important
1: that's mutual aid that's the word uh, the writerly perspective on that which is absolutely not in contradiction to it is is already it's there in Orwell when he looked it's there a long time before that but when Orwell looks at the way people make sentences there are more and less truthful ways of making sentences um, you can, you know, you can, you can write. One of the most obscene things lately is is referring to Johnson as the Tory Party wordsmith.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> During when Hitler came to power in thirty three, before it, the war started, the Rhineland's, which were Catholic and to a large extent independent minded, Heinrich Bill remembers being given passages from Mein Kampf in school, just to see how badly it was written. Mm-hmm. That is, to somebody who writes like that, is actually suspect. There was a lot of work done, even during the war, by certain scholars on the language of National Socialism. It's worth one's while uh, concentrating on how people write. I read very little of Blair's autobiography, but you can tell, honestly, this um, this is not divination. You can tell from the first three pages that a man who writes like that is almost incapable of understanding the degree to which he is lying. There's something wrong about that kind of language. It's self-deceiving. I read the report, or well, one of the reports that Steve referred to about about these child uh, child abuse, and I've I've spoken to him often about it since. It's not just getting the facts, but the work that the QCs did, and then whoever actually wrote the report. It is exactly that. You you could say, she was a QC and she hated approximations. It's that level of accuracy, of carefulness, of language you know the syntax is exactly right, the words are exactly right. There's no exaggeration, there's no bidding for pity, it's these this is what it is. Steve and his colleague had supplied these people with the facts, and then you get somebody who can actually write a, a report in forensically exact English. And the making of sentences itself in that context a moral act. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind about that. Just as the the making of sloppy sentences, you're edging into something which connives in in lying. And that's what the writer's obligation is, is is actually to to write well, to write clearly. And if the truth is the truth of the... there's, There's no difference in my mind between the kind of forensic thing that was done by Steve and his colleague and the QCs and the person who wrote the report and me trying to write as exactly as I can about entirely fictional characters about people I've made up, whose lives I've largely invented, or in poems where there is no nothing there that is, as it were, factually true or factually untrue. But I know when I'm trying to write that I'm trying to be as honest as possible. This sounds terribly sort of you know, inflated view of it, but you are your own arbiter when you write. You're the arbiter of whether this sentence is true or not, whether it's just or not, whether it's exact enough or not. And that's of a part with... You know, it's, it's it's an alliance with all manner of writing and inquiry, which is actually to give us a basis in truth. Because without that, we really have had it.
0: Thank you, David. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, thank you, listeners. It's been an amazing honour to, to talk with you about uh, this particular moment in history. Thank you for listening. Tune in next month when we'll be discussing the flashpoint of the minor strike, famously known as the Battle of Orgreave, with author Martin Bedford, historian professor David Waddington, and activist Craig Oldham.